This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNXRadio.com studios here in Los Angeles. And I'm Ken Charles, sitting in for Mike Simpson. You're still sitting. I'm I'm here. You guys let me come back. You've been sitting for 24 hours. Listen, I you love it You didn't get here. up once. I love it here. <laughs> it's my favorite place. Well, of course, we're here, as we always are, uh, to talk about whatever is now happening in this horrible global coronavirus pandemic. And, you know, it's a milestone podcast for us. It is. This is episode 100. I can't believe that. Really? We started this podcast March 16th. 100. 100. Wow. Five a week. That's 20 weeks ago we started this podcast. And at the beginning, we all thought we'd do this for five or six weeks. Things would right. get back to normal. Here we are 20 weeks later and nothing's changed. Wow. You know, it, it and it is hard to imagine that... Um, something else that's hard to imagine mm-hmm. is the testimony today with Dr. Anthony Fauci in Congress um, where he talked about the good, the bad, and the ugly of coronavirus and the pandemic. And and by the way, along those lines, there's a new model uh, that is out. It predicts, uh, unfortunately, a lot more deaths across the country. But, and here's the kind of and kind of good news, I don't know, if we continue on our current path, we'll see those high numbers. If we change our ways, then maybe we can bring those numbers down pretty significantly. Well, and we had comments recently that the virus isn't as bad for kids. Well, a new study shows just how quickly the virus can spread because dozens of kids and others got infected at a camp in Georgia. Now, you know, talking about kids, uh, can how far behind will kids fall when they have to start school with remote learning this year? Well, a former cabinet member is going to have an explanation on that one. And if you've been looking at your 401k, you know just how badly the economy tanked today compared to when the pandemic started. When will we recover? I'll tell you how bad it is. The 401k, mine is so bad, my computer refused to open it. Yeah, mine's a 201k now. <laughs> well, uh, if you're a baseball fan, you are. I'm a Yankee fan. Okay, Don't well, hold that against me. No, <laughs> but, but you might want to temper your excitement. Are you excited? Uh, listen, baseball is the one sport that hasn't bothered me with no fans. Hockey and basketball are a little weird. Baseball's baseball, and I'm really happy it's back. But here's the problem. Because of this pandemic, it could already be in jeopardy. Great. You know, the one positive thing in my entire life is my Yankees are back and all of a sudden not. But let's get back to Dr. Fauci. Ah, yes. He told Congress the virus isn't going away soon. Dr. Shane Crowdy is a virologist and professor at the La Jolla Institute of Immunology. He talked to Charles and Chris Seedens about what Fauci said today and if there's something positive coming up. I think Fauci's goal was to really reiterate the importance of uh, of masks. You know, I think I think wearing masks right now clearly prevents cases and saves lives. And it, it really is kind of like a vaccine right now. You know, it, it, it mask wearing really is quite effective. And, and so I think it is frustrating for public health officials and scientists who are working hard on vaccines and whatnot, you know, seeing people aren't wearing masks. Um, so, so trying to uh, reiterate that and uh, to manage expectations about uh, uh, vaccines in, in the near future, because for there's a huge amount of activity going on in, in vaccines, and I'm happy to talk about it. But at the same time, the only vaccine that test that really matters is the phase three clinical trial, which is the protection test. And those are just starting now. 
when it when it comes to managing expectations and managing how people deal with this, tell me how damaging is it when you have contradictory statements from health professionals, people like Dr. Fauci and White House officials like Donald Trump? Yeah, it's really hard. I mean, when people, I mean, you can you can definitely see it in the country when people get mixed messages. Some people pay attention to the one message and some pay attention to the other, and and, and you can see it in you know COVID caseloads and one state versus another, you know, based on what, what policies they decide to follow. Certainly, I mean, the, the scientific evidence, the medical evidence has been clear that, that uh, when people wear masks, it's very effective at, at keeping them from getting, uh, getting infected. And otherwise, it's, it's also very clear that COVID-19 is a very infectious disease. Um, as, as you guys mentioned, I mean, the, the, the newest example from the CDC is, is really impressive right one kid infecting 200 and something within a couple of days um and that that's playing out over and over again in different places right like i mean how how explosive it was in new york city etc it's it's clearly a very infectious virus the the issue with the vaccine and and that i think is something that's that's worth uh getting clearer for the public to understand when when people like Dr. Fauci say that you know he's cautiously optimistic, I, I think were his words, that there would be a safe and effective vaccine by the end of the year. That does not, though, and, and correct me if if I'm wrong about this. That does not mean, though, that even if that happens by the end of this year, that vaccine or vaccines will be widely available. It doesn't mean that it won't be many, many months until a large number of Americans, uh, indeed people all over the world, will get vaccinated. It doesn't mean that it's not going to be free of side effects that won't be noticed until many, many months after it is widely available. All those things are still going to be at play, right? Those are those are great points. Um... A couple of things about it. So, with a definitely with a normal vaccine uh, approach, w- once a vaccine was shown to be effective, basically then manufacturing would be started to really make it be available, you know, to the public. And and it, it, at least for the major vaccines being tested right now, that that's not the strategy being used. Um, and and essentially all of those cases they're already scaling up the manufacturing so that they'll have lots of doses available at the end of the year is their goal, even though they don't know if their vaccine's going to be effective. I mean, th- that's basically the main part of all of this is being sped up in 2020. The, the, all of the safety tests, all of the effectiveness tests take just as long as they ever take. What, what's being sped up is the parts that money can solve. So, you know, money can solve going ahead and trying to manufacture a lot of the vaccine, even though you don't know if it'll work. Dr. Shane Crotty, virologist and professor at the Aloha Institute for Immunology. Thank you, sir. If we don't get a handle on this pandemic, it's going to be pretty obvious that more people are going to die. And one new model is predicting at least 230,000 Americans are going to be dead from COVID-19 by the time we hit Election Day in November. That's a staggering number. So we're 94 days away or 95 days away from the election. We're at 152,000 deaths nationwide. That's over 70,000 new deaths 
yeah. uh, coming up in 95 days. That is astounding. Well, Charles, you and Chris talk to the person behind this new model. Dr. Christopher Murray is the director of the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington Department of Global Health. He wasn't optimistic. No, no, we're continuing to see, uh, you know, a, a pretty steady death toll and uh, lots of reasons to expect that that death toll will rise as we get later in the fall. Dr. Murray, how has your modeling changed over the last few months? How would you compare what you were seeing leading up, say, to Memorial Day compared to what you're seeing now? Well, you know, first of all, uh, in the, uh, our model has evolved because, of course, this was a new pandemic. And I think we were all learning at the beginning just what was driving the pandemic and how effective social distancing was and controlling it. So there's been, you know, sort of academic scientific advance in the modeling. But in terms of the, the behaviors and the, the factors driving the forecasts, in May, you know, with the easing of mandates, we saw people as measured through cell phones becoming much more mobile, but we didn't really see a big uptick yet in the epidemic. And I think with hindsight, our understanding of that is that people were getting out more from their house after the lockdowns, but they weren't, they were being much more cautious. They were avoiding physical contact, uh, you know, large group gatherings, and some of them were wearing a mask. Um, and then as the summer has rolled on, I think we've seen people being much less cautious and we get more transmission. Uh, then you get the big epidemics like we're seeing in California and Texas and Florida, and then people get scared again and start being cautious again. And that's putting the brakes on the, uh, on those epidemics. So it's really this roller coaster of, of human behavior that's, that's driving uh, the trends that we're seeing in the epidemic. So let me see if, if we can, and, and I'm, I'm going to guess you're going to want to be very cautious in this answer because you like to have the data to, to support what you're going to say. But nonetheless, let me let me, let me fish around a bit because, uh, you know, Dr. Fauci, for example, this morning testified that uh, he was cautiously optimistic that there might be an effective and safe vaccine by the end of this year. But, of course, that doesn't mean widely in distribution until probably sometime maybe in the in the uh, early part of the winter of 2021, maybe even the spring of 2021. Then you have to vaccinate a lot of people. You have to do all that stuff. Realistically, you know, we're talking about uh, this this horribly large number by November. What are we really thinking or talking about in a year from now? You know, I think there's there's no reason to expect up until about a year from now, because I think even if the vaccine, which we all hope will be the case, that there'll be several vaccine candidates that are effective, by the time there's mass manufacturing, mass distribution, probably, I think most people that we talk to are thinking the summer of, of next year, basically a year from now. And so I, I think, uh, or we think that uh, there will be as much death from November to next summer, as there has been through to November. So probably we're, we're looking, uh, you know, unless there's something really dramatic, like a, a new treatment uh, or much faster vaccine scale up, we're, we're you know, potentially looking at, at uh, half a million deaths by the summer next year or more, um, depending on how we behave in terms of uh, our own, you know, behavioral choices of wearing a mask and avoiding people, 
Um, a lot of this is in our own hands, in a sense, of what actually the toll will be. Dr. Christopher Murray directs the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation of the University of Washington's Department of Global Health. Dr. Murray, thank you. Did you ever go to um, sleepaway camp when you were a kid? No. Or as an adult? Um, you know what? <laughs> Either way. <laughs> Not as an adult, but as a kid, I did go to Boy Scout camp. Okay. And and I think I went once, uh, but I had terrible allergies and I hated it. I was in the country up in the Catskills in New York State, and, and I remember my eyes were <laughs> tearing and I was sneezing. Horrible experience. I learned that I'm not the camping guy. Oh, okay. That's how I learned going to the bathroom in a latrine, <laughs> sharing you know, a tent with other Boy Scouts. No. I, you know, if, if I'm not in a nice hotel with my own bathroom, I'm not going. Now, folks, in case you're wondering why we're kind of going down memory lane here with our, our experiences in uh, uh, daycare. <laughs> daycare. <yeah. laughs> it is like daycare uh, in, in uh, sleepaway camp. Uh, the CDC uh, tracked a coronavirus outbreak at a sleepaway camp in Georgia where 260 kids and staff got infected. The new research shows the kids carry the same viral load as adults do. Dr. Jennifer Schuster is a pediatric infectious disease physician at Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City. She explained to both you and Chris Seedens what we can learn from these findings and what happens next. This was a really nice study that was done out of Chicago that showed that children who were less than five had, and I believe it was 10 to 100-fold times greater the amount of um, uh, a virus detected in their upper respiratory tract. And this actually, this uh, information has been published um, by a group in New York that noticed very high viral loads in infants who were diagnosed with COVID-19. And this is interesting because this comes uh, out in the same week or two weeks that we've gotten some information from large-scale uh, epidemiologic studies in South Korea where it looks like children who are nine years of age and, and younger actually transmit the virus less than adults. So it's an interesting contrast that, that they seem to have high viral loads in some studies, higher than in adults, but, uh, but seem to transmit less in other studies. And, and people are thinking a lot about why this may be. There's a couple of thoughts. One is that children seem to overall be much less sick from the virus that causes COVID-19. Um, so they, as, as opposed to adults who um, many times will land in the hospital, children seem to do relatively well. Now, we know that this virus is spread through droplets and through uh, close contact, talking, coughing, sneezing, all of those respiratory secretions. And so some people have thought that perhaps if children are less symptomatic, then they may be less likely to have those activities such as coughing, sneezing, um, uh, and so are less likely to transmit the virus. Uh, but we're still trying to learn a lot. Others have, have thought that perhaps because children are even smaller and lower to the ground, they may be less likely to transmit the virus face-to-face -face, uh, compared with adults who may be talking with each other in close quarters. So we're still learning more uh, in, in terms of um, transmissibility in children. All right. So so you have the issue of, of the... Uh pure numbers of, of viral particles that, that children may harbor. And then you have this incident in uh, the Georgia sleepaway camp where just one child, apparently, in the course of three days, managed to spread uh, the infection to uh, over, uh, what was it, 100? 260 200, people. 260 uh, uh, other children. So, 
what does that say about efforts to open up schools? Because I get it that in sleepaway camp they're staying overnight, but even in in school, I mean, they're spending many many hours with other children, certainly with adults who are the teachers. This doesn't look like a very good thing. Yeah, you know, I think this is a really nice study that just came out from the CDC. So I think that there's a couple of of things to think about. So. The, the authors do couch that they're not entirely, they can't say definitively whether it was one child who spread the virus um, to all of these other uh, people. So I think that information um, is, is still not quite determined. I think one of the really important things is, you know, the, the authors of this study do a really nice job talking about the measures that the sleepaway camp took to prevent spread of the virus. And we know the CDC has instructed um, a number of risk mitigation strategies or things that we can do to prevent the spread of virus. We know that people can spread this virus even when they feel well. Um, And so we do a number of things like physical distancing and mask wearing and a variety of other things in order to decrease that spread. One of the interesting things that I, I think is highlighted in this study is the camp actually did do a number of those things in terms of hand hygiene. Um, they tried to keep people in groups of 26 or less, uh, which is actually still a fairly large group of children. One of the things that they did not do is that masks were required for staff members, but they were actually not required for uh, children um, and for campers. They do talk also that they did a number of indoor um, and outdoor activities, but that they did a lot of vigorous singing and cheering. And so we know that those activities have actually been deemed to be high risk by the CDC through other studies uh, where they've looked at very, very high infection rates in in people who are participating in uh, those activities, particularly singing. And so while a number of risk mitigation strategies were put in place, uh, there were still a number of high-risk activities, unfortunately, and and we know those high-risk activities are associated with infection, um, absolutely, in adults, and this highlights that even children, when engaged in those high-risk activities, can still very efficiently spread the virus. Dr. Jennifer Schuster, pediatric infectious disease physician in children's at Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City. Thank you, doctor. Well, you know, once uh, kids get through their experience, hopefully in a healthy way, uh, with uh, summer camp, it's school time. Start of the next school year will be much different for most students around the country as they begin, for many of them, most of them even, at home online learning. Now, the thing about that, though, is no one believes kids get the same type of education online as they do when, you know, they're sitting in a classroom. Now, former Education Secretary Margaret Spelling worked with George W. Bush um, and is now with the nonprofit Texas 2036. She talked to Carol D.'s John Little about whether students will fall behind and, again, what parents can do to prevent that from happening. Well, it is not impossible for us to catch up if we or have our students catch up if we intervene as quickly as possible. We, we know what to do to get kids back on track and we need to, you know, move with haste in doing that. One of the things that I think is getting short shrift in this discussion about health and safety, which is obviously hugely important, is these educational issues. I mean, we know that if our kids are not on track, they will potentially suffer lifetime income loss and very uh, traumatic issues. But if we address them quickly, we can get them back on course. Again, no risk-free scenarios, but having our kids home 
not productively engaged in learning has huge downsides as well. And that is why the National Academies, the American uh, Society of Pediatricians and so forth, very notable groups have said, get our kids back, quote unquote, in school, hybrid, online, or, you know, preferably in person with their peers and other adults. There does seem to be a consensus that in-person is better. But at the same time, I wouldn't think that anybody, including the districts, want to step up and say, yes, if somebody gets really sick or dies from COVID, we'll take that responsibility on ourselves. So what's the happy medium here? What has to happen? And that's why options are important for educators and for families. You know, no one, I mean, I don't think families should have to be forced into a particular, uh, you know, environment. If they're, you know, living at home with a grandparent that has cancer or underlying conditions or, you know, on and on and on, a million different scenarios. And so these are decisions that parents and educators are going to make together. We ought to have options. I think most school districts are doing that. But, you know, there is great risk of kids not being on track educationally as well. And so those are all of those factors are going to have to be taken into consideration when families and educators make these decisions. It is very complex but vital to the functioning of our society to get these kids back learning. Well, we knew the uh, pandemic was going to slam the economy hard. We just didn't really know exactly how hard. Now we do. The U.S. gross domestic product dropped by a third in the second quarter of this year. Now, that's massive. It really is. And it shows how much economic damage has been done to the country. Unemployment claims are still unusually high, with more than a million people filing for jobless benefits again last week. Villanova University School of Business professor David Fiorenza talked to KYW's Matt Leon about how bad things are, when and if things are going to get better. Even the recession of 2008-9, even the recession of 1982, uh, I think you have to go back to the Eisenhower administration, and then even the Great Depression back in 1929 to see figures like this. The federal unemployment boost, that extra 600 bucks a week has run out and the Senate isn't going to do anything this weekend. This has a chance to really get really bad really quickly, doesn't it? It does. It really does because people are going to be looking at tomorrow, August 1st, not just mortgage payments, but rent, car payments, maybe credit card payments and whatever else they have to pay upcoming this next week, utilities maybe even tuition payments coming up. So there's a lot of payments that that are going to have to be made uh, in the next couple of weeks. And and that's where it's going to tell the test of whether the people who work paycheck to paycheck or live paycheck to paycheck, can they survive this pandemic? Yeah. And I mean, when you consider how much of the economy has been kind of boosted on federal spending between the extra $600, those stimulus payments, it's amazing when you think of all the numbers we've talked about, but if if Congress doesn't do something on a big scale again, it's amazing to think that we may not have even seen the worst of this economic crisis yet. Right. I, I think the crisis would be a lot worse if our Fed chairperson, Jerome Powell, didn't step in. Um, this past week, they bought an additional $120 billion of Treasury and mortgage-backed bonds uh, to encourage borrowing and spending, um, which is fine. But I think 
what's happening is it's encouraging people to save because the personal savings of people has really increased from the first quarter to the second quarter, even though mortgage rates are below 3%. So what are you hearing people that follow these things, project these things as to when they think big picture, things will be back to as close to normal uh, as we're used to? Because I saw one one thing on Twitter that people were starting to say now, mid-2022. Oh, wow. Yes, I've seen some of that, too. I'm glad you brought that up. So you're gonna, we're going to get different opinions from different people. Uh, a lot of people I'm talking to, either economists, financial people, or people in, in real estate, are looking towards the virus as their answer. Uh, as the way to build consumer confidence back up. And again, I'm not a doctor, so I'm not sure if that's good, bad, or indifferent. I have to see what comes out of it. I will say this, the stock market, even though it's a little rocky and every day is an adventure with the stock market, it does show signs of gains in various industries, such as tech um, and other industries, pharmaceuticals. So there are some hopeful signs, but it all points back to the virus and I said last week, this year's 25%. I did say next year would be 50% that we're going to be at. I think I'm going to have to pull back on that number, Matt. The return of pro sports, it's been cheered by fans who've been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And well, that's enough of waiting. You were, you're, you were happy. Uh, I was only happy because the Yankees came back and tomorrow the Rangers start playing in the NHL. So life is a little bit more fulfilling for me. Oh, that's so nice. Yes. <laughs> well, the NBA... Unless, unless they both start losing, in which case, <laughs> yeah, not so much. Then it's not so nice. The NBA and, and NHL decided to play in a bubble so that players, coaches, and staff could be separated from the rest of the world, and they were doing that to avoid the coronavirus infection. Baseball didn't do that. Teams are traveling, and the results have not been good. The Marlins have an outbreak and can't play. Now two Cardinals players tested positive, leaving to the postponement of their games against the Brewers. Did baseball goof by not going into a bubble? Dr. Zachary Binney is an epidemiologist and professor of data sciences at Emory University in Atlanta. He talked to you, Charles, and Chris about baseball's big risk. Well, if you sort of look at everything and scan everything at a very high level, some patterns do start to emerge. You start to see that leagues that tried to reestablish in the U.S. in a bubble, so starting with the National Women's Soccer League, uh, going through Major League Soccer, the NBA, the WNBA, and the NHL up in Canada have all been relatively successful. So it looks like bubble plans so far, knock on wood, are, con- are working. If you look at other countries like Germany, South Korea, even Spain and Italy, who had a very rough start but have their epidemics much more under control than we do, they were able to bring back their top pro leagues outside of a bubble, and that was okay. But when you try to do that here, as with Major League Baseball, uh, you start to see some trouble and some outbreaks. And you actually saw that in Major League Soccer, too, just before their Dallas and Nashville teams entered the bubble. Uh, They got exposed, and, and those sparked some outbreaks. Major League Baseball games started being postponed just four days into the season. Doc, is, is there any way that we see an end to the Major League Baseball season, or is this is this doomed, unfortunately? No, I wouldn't say it's doomed just yet. I, I think it would be premature of Major League Baseball to scrap the entire season right yet. But, uh, you know, we do have a couple cases right now on the Cardinals that could turn into more, or it could not. We just don't know yet. We need to wait another day or two, but... Uh, you know, we saw the big outbreak on the Marlins, and, and that's in MLB's Eastern Division. They've split into 
uh, geographic divisions, east, central, and west. St. Louis is in the central. So they've had no contact with the Marlins. So if we see a big outbreak like we did on the Marlins happen on the Cardinals, then that suggests that this is just going to keep happening and that maybe you do need to think about suspending the season. But I'm not saying that right yet. You know, in in some ways, it's kind of interesting that these teams are all sort of canaries in the coal mine. I mean, you can kind of see what each one does and how they do or don't get infected. Are there lessons that people outside of these teams and other uh, spheres of the economy can learn from this? Well, I think what you see is something that we already knew, which is that um, a lot of close contact among people living in communities, particularly communities with a lot of virus like Miami, uh, you know, the virus can move through a group like that pretty quickly. And we've seen outbreaks on, you know, high school football teams, meatpacking plants, prisons, basic training in the Army. If you have a lot of people in uh, close contact uh, and you're not doing very, very frequent, very fast turnaround testing, uh, the vir- including of asymptomatic people, uh, then the virus can rip through any of those groups. Dr. Benny, thank you. Dr. Uh, Zachary Benny, he's an epidemiologist, professor of data sciences at Emory University. People stuck at home because of the pandemic and shutdowns have had a lot of time to pick up new hobbies, but that hasn't necessarily been a good thing. Some people in South Korea decided to try day trading of stocks to make some money. I don't know, is that a hobby? I guess it's some. Okay, it's a weird hobby. It's easy to set up an account, and then, you know, you you buy and sell some stocks. Well, if you sell at the right time, you could make some extra cash. But it has led to some problems like, oh, gambling addiction. (laughs) (laughs) Day traders seeking help for gambling issues have tripled in that country lately. Mental health experts say isolated people lack a support group like friends telling them, hey, you're obsessing too much. Plus, they say compulsive stock trading lacks the social stigma that gambling does, which could draw more people to try it. It sounds like, Ken, a really bad hobby. I guess, you know, Thorpe, to me, a card table in Vegas is probably (laughs) better than a computer and Wall Street. You can find this Radio.com original podcast and others at Radio.com, the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. And be sure to hit the subscribe button wherever you find us. And you don't have to gamble to find us. And please come back for episode 101 Monday.